Hi, my name is Neil Canavan. I'm the scientific director for the Trout Group and coordinator of Trout Talks, which is an educational seminar series where we talk to the scientists about their science. Today, I am sitting with Louis Metis, who is the uh, senior VP and chief of development at Pyrrhus Pharmaceuticals. Louis, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I've noted that you joined Pyrrhus rather quite recently in 2015. So I'd like to talk to you just uh, a bit about uh, your prior work before joining Pyrrhus. Uh, you were at Alexion for the last five years, and uh, you were chief scientific officer over there. Can you tell me just a bit about uh, your work over there? Well, sure. So uh, my background is actually clinically in internal medicine and medical oncology, mm -hmm. and from a research perspective in immunology. Uh, and I spent 16 years of my, the first part of my career at the National Institutes of Health, most of it in the National Cancer Institute. Um, I left the NCI in 1993, and that's when I actually first joined Alexion, when it was a startup company, um, mm -hmm. was around the 20th employee, and I joined them as uh, chief scientific officer. And although the company didn't have a cancer focus in those days. The company did have an interest in immunology, both cellular immunology and uh, an interest in uh, innate immunology, in, in particular looking at the role of the complement system in disease. Mm -hmm. And during my time at Alexion, I made an antibody to complement component C5, uh, which went on to become a blockbuster drug now known as Celeris, uh, and uh, is approved for uh, rare diseases in which regulation of complement is uh, impaired from uh, due to genetic abnormalities in complement control proteins. And uh, those diseases include paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, a bit mm -hmm. of a mouthful, PNH, which is a uh, red cell destructive disorder. The red cells don't have uh, sufficient complement inhibitory proteins on their surface. But the disease is much more than just a hemolysis. It actually leads to severe thrombosis, uh, problems with kidney uh, failure, and uh, ultimately premature death. So it's a lethal disease, and uh, Solaris in the treatment of PNH has really transformed the management of that disease. Another rare disease for which Solaris is approved is called atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. Mm -hmm. Again, a disease in which complement regulatory proteins are uh, impaired in their function or absent, and which leads to severe inflammatory, complement-mediated inflammatory disease, resulting in abnormalities of uh, blood components, thrombocytopenia, low platelets, uh, renal failure, uh, central nervous system abnormalities, and can of often be a fatal disease. Uh, however, Solaris for the treatment of those patients basically restores to them uh, pretty much normal life in most cases. So this is, the drug has actually evolved to become a blockbuster. Now, uh, you mentioned your training in immunology. Now, I'm going to return to uh, a more background on your training in just a moment. Uh, but first, also uh, just a little bit more on your. You also have a, a fairly interesting business background uh, as far as building companies. Could you uh, prior to Alexion there was CGI? Could you just give me a little bit of flavor of what you accomplished for them? Yeah, actually CGI. So I left Alexion. I came to Alexion in 1993, mm -hmm. as chief scientific officer. In 2000, uh, I was offered the opportunity to lead another company that was being spun out of Yale University Medical Center. And that was CGI Pharmaceuticals. Okay. That was based on enabling technology with respect to target validation of kinases in disease. And uh, so we developed quite a bit of expertise, both from the chemistry standpoint in developing kinase inhibitors and from the biology standpoint in, be in being able to 
uh, evaluate uh, biologically the function of kinases and the role and the act and the consequences of inhibiting kinases in terms of uh, its effect on disease processes, including cancer. So we developed a series of small molecule kinase inhibitors against different kinase targets, and we're developing them for autoimmune diseases such as SLE and arthritis, as well as for cancer. And um, so we had developed some kinases against BTK and against uh, some of the angiogenesis kinase targets. And uh, uh, the chemistry was, was new to me. I'm a biologist, an antibody fellow, and we were developing now, now medic using medicinal chemistry to develop small molecule kinase inhibitors. Uh, the progress in developing those inhibitors was slow, but it was exciting. Uh, kinases had become a very exciting uh, class of targets for uh, developing uh, therapeutics across a number of different indications, but often focused on inflammatory disease mm -hmm. and cancer. Um, that company uh, was ultimately uh, acquired by Gilead Pharmaceuticals, and I left a, b a bit before that. Um, I was the CEO at that company. When I left that company, I did some consulting with the Immune Tolerance Network for uh, several years, uh, working with Jeff Bluestone, who led the Immune Tolerance Network in those days while he was uh, head of the Diabetes Center at UCSF. Uh, see, now you gave me the perfect in to talk about your early training. Uh, you did. You are a physician by training. I am. Uh, you, you went to UPenn, University of Chicago, and then you were at the NIH. And uh, you're associated with Jeff Bluestone, who, if uh, the listeners don't know, is now one of the premier immunotherapy people. He's the head of UCSF, and he's, more importantly, of recent vintage, the head of uh, the Parker Initiative. So he's sitting on a great deal of money to, to do the research <laughs> for this work. Uh, but he is one of the giants of this field. Uh, could you talk just a little bit about uh, to, to further convince people you really know what you're doing in, in, in <laughs> immunology, just a little bit about your work with Jeff. Yeah, well, I'll go back. So I, I, uh, after finishing my internal medicine residency at the University of Chicago, I then went to the NIH. And I started out at the NIH in the Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease and did a uh, immunology research fellow fellowship in the Laboratory of Immunology, headed by William Paul. And um, there, uh, I learned uh, the field of immunology and uh, I did uh, what the equivalent for an NIH uh, clinical fellow of a postdoctoral research fellowship um, and developed an expertise in the biology of T lymphocytes. It was a very exciting time to be studying the T cell. Uh, the T cell receptor uh, was cloned during those years by Mark Davis and Steve Hedrick, and uh, T cell function was uh, being. Uh, understood in, in much greater detail than uh, the earlier phenomenologic uh, studies in immunology had shown. And one of the technologies that uh, my lab was a, an early adopter of, and I, I'd like to say and believe in the forefront of, was developing clone T cells. And uh, clone T cells are uh, T cells, all of which express the exact same receptor. Mm -hmm. So you can develop a large population of T cells with a, uh, a very uh, a unique specificity and study their biology in multiple ways. Uh, so one of the ways in which I, we deployed T cells in the laboratory when, when I, well, let me take a step back just for a moment. After finishing that fellowship, I decided to do my subspecialty training, not in infectious disease or in allergy, which was what the uh, Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease 
uh, does from a clinical perspective, but to go to the National Cancer Institute and do my specialty training in medical oncology. There we go. So I spent several years uh, as a uh, clinical oncology fellow and then got my uh, uh, license certification for as a medical oncologist, was offered a job in the uh, medicine branch of the, uh, of the National Cancer Institute, and then uh, uh, developed my own laboratory, pursuing a number of different projects related to T-cell biology. But one of the projects, and this is now we're talking the 1980s, was to develop a series of T-cell clones specific for different tumors. Uh, and this, of course, was in mouse models. And uh, in the early days, but we were able to show that adoptive transfer of our T-cell clones, specific for mouse leukemias, uh, were able to significantly inhibit the growth of established mouse leukemias. And went on to do collaboration with uh, Steve Rosenberg and his group. You know, during the 80s, Steve Rosenberg was sure. uh, leading the effort to uh, develop interleukin-2 as a therapy for cancer, and uh, actually interleukin-2 is still approved for the treatment of kidney cancer. And although it worked in a minority of patients, it clearly was some of the first evidence that one could use uh, an immunologically relevant molecule like IL-2, that's uh, interleukin-2 is a T-cell activating uh, cytokine. Um, and uh, so we collaborated with Steve, and what we showed is that when we combined the adoptive transfer of my T-cell clones with my tumor-specific T-cell clones, and then gave the mice, supplemented the uh, therapy with interleukin-2, right, right. we were able to cure a large number of the mice and publish that. And at the time, I also in, uh, did collaborations using my T-cell clones uh, to look at tumor models with the group at, uh, uh, at the University of Washington at the Hutch, uh, working with uh, Phil Greenberg. Phil, and yeah. The, yeah, yeah. And just uh, happened to just see Phil at the, uh, at the meeting cancer immunology yeah. uh, meeting, cancer immunotherapy meetings in New York this past week, and we collaborated and published as well. Well, let, well, let me stop you because I mean we could go on for a long time because this is fascinating to me, and you've worked with some of the giants. Well, let me just make one other little anecdote sure. point because uh, 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 I often make this point, but it was really true in those days. Uh, we were taunted a little bit for. Uh, spending our laboratory's resources on curing cancers in mice with, uh, with T cells. Uh, never forget a colleague in my department saying to me, Lou, don't you realize that uh, you're barking completely up the wrong tree? That human cancer is not an immunological disease. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, it took several decades, but uh, that individual was proven wrong. That is beautiful. But yeah, so. The impression I get, I mean, not only do you have all the business experience, but you have a lot of science experiment, or experience with a lot of different tools, all of which are, are new pretty much as you're using them. But now we've, we've, we've come to Paris, and it's a curious thing to me. You're not working with antibodies anymore. Now you're working with something else, the Kalins. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little uncertain about that. Can you tell me about Kalins? Yes, I can. Well, let me just say at the outset, and I'll explain in just a moment, we are working with antibodies. We use antibodies in combination with anticalins to make bispecific molecules. But right. let me step back. So anticalins, that's actually like a trademark term for uh, a series of what I believe are very versatile, um, you know, therapeutically very promising uh, smaller proteins that would be considered in the class of non-immunoglobulin scaffold binding proteins. Okay. 
and a number of them are being pursued by companies, but I like the anticalins in particular because of the way in which they were derived. So anticalins are derived from human lipocalins. Human lipocalins are very interesting. Lipocalins in particular, they're a family of, of small, about 16 to 18 kilodalton proteins uh, that uh, are present throughout uh, all phyla. So they clearly have an important role um, in, um, in maintaining normal function of animals going from insects all the way through to, to humans. And what's interesting is that the lipocalins are naturally secreted proteins, and uh, their structure is such that there's a natural binding pocket in the middle of the protein. It's like a cup-like structure. And what's really interesting is there are 12 human lipocalins, uh, and their sequence homology is actually uh, rather limited. And yet, despite a significant diversion in sequence, they all have the same cup-like structure. So it's very critical for these set of proteins is that they retain their binding function. And even to this day, uh, the functions of all the various uh, lipocalins are not totally understood, but it is clear that they are uh, binding proteins and they play a role in transport okay. of their targets. So there are lipocalins that will bind to certain vitamins like vitamin A and transport it from one location in a cell to another cell. Okay. Or um, uh, there, are there are lipocalins that bind lipids, lipocalins that bind steroids, and they're transport proteins. They're naturally secreted, which is uh, obviously from the standpoint of using them as a protein, uh, as, as the basis for a new novel protein binding class, very important. They're secreted, so that means that they're used to being in the bloodstream, and the body is used yeah. to having them in the bloodstream, so they wouldn't or in tissue that. fluids. Uh, so there's a, one family of lipocalins, for example, is tear lipocalins, and the tear lipocalins are one of the most abundant proteins in tears, and so they're naturally secreted. So what was found, because they have a natural binding uh, pocket, and because they are um, preserved in structure, it was discovered by the founder, a professor at, uh, at Munich, Munich Technical University in Germany, that one could uh, perform site-directed mutagenesis throughout the binding pocket and retain proteins of the same structure, but yet by making these mutations within the binding pocket, was able to generate a libraries of proteins derived from lipocalins with multiple different specificities. So in other words, a new class of binding proteins, and by using site-directed immunogenesis and the high-throughput technologies of phage display, you can make large libraries of binding proteins. So they don't normally mutate like antibodies do to generate their specificities, but you can, through the laboratory, generate Specific, specific libraries with the same diversity as antibodies generate in our bodies. Well, so that statement right there is, is the part that I'm confused by. In your bispecific constructs, why aren't you using two antibodies? We already know how to raise antibodies to anything. How? What's the advantage to using well, you know, the lipocalin? There, there are, um, clearly there are advances in antibody technology for making bispecifics. Uh, some of the formats actually are associated with difficulty in manufacture and stability, um, but I think that, that field is moving forward uh, rapidly. But antikalins are unique in the sense that 
they're very small compared to antibodies. Anticalins are 17 or 18 kilodaltons. That's one-eighth the size of an antibody. And what we have been able to do in terms of leveraging the very potent binding and highly selective binding of the anticalins that we generate, and just to step back for one second, so where does anticalins come from? Well, the anti is from the antibody. You've generated a protein that has a specificity against the target, and the kalin is from the lipocalins. Right. So yep, anticalins sure. is a, a hybrid term for our class of drug. Right. Got it. Okay, so uh, the small size of the anticalins and the fact that unlike an antibody where the, the binding end of the antibody is all on the amino terminus mm -hmm. and the functional end of the antibody is on the carboxy terminus, for the lipocalins, the binding is in the middle of the protein, the binding, the binding pocket, mm -hmm. which means that both the N uh, and C terminal ends of the protein are free. So what can you do with that? Well, you can string multiple uh, anticalins together and generate multi-specific binding proteins with a series of anticalins. And we've done that in one of our collaborations. We have a tetracalin, four anticalins. This is part of a collaboration with Sanofi against uh, targets uh, in, in infectious disease indication, where we're able to neutralize 20 different targets on a bacterial, uh, in a bacteria simultaneously with one tetracalin. Another advantage of the anticalins is by their small size, they're amenable to certain forms of drug delivery that cannot be pursued with an antibody. So as an example, uh, we have a very potent, a picomolar binding anticalin specific for the interleukin-4 alpha receptor. Okay. Now the interleukin-4 alpha receptor has been pursued by Regeneron Pharmaceuticals using a monoclonal antibody in patients with severe type 2 asthma and uncontrolled asthma, and of course they're also developing it for atopic dermatitis. So it's a very well validated target. But for the asthma indication, what we've been able to do with our anticalin, which you can't do with an antibody because the antibody's too big, is we're developing it as an inhaled therapeutic. So we have an anticalin to the IL-4 receptor alpha, which will be administered uh, as an inhaled treatment, first by nebulization, and we're already in the process of making a dry powder formulation of the drug. That's a drug that we now call PRS-060. Okay. It's a very potent, very specific picomolar binder to the interleukin-4-alpha receptor. We have proof of mechanism in, in vivo showing that the, the anticalin administered into the lung blocks the receptor and blocks inflammation driven through the receptor in preclinical models. And we're now moving that program to the clinic with IND-enabling studies underway and the drug slated to enter the clinic in the first half of next year. And the advantages are, one, you're administering the drug in, directly into the lung, which allows us to use much lower doses than you need to use with a parenterally administered antibody. So we're very excited about that. And, and a lot of patients, we believe, with asthma, uh, even though the injections that the, the, the other new biologics against asthma are of antibody type format are injected. Uh, patients will do that, but there's, we believe, and our market research tells us, that there's a significant number of patients who'd much rather uh, take an inhaled drug uh, once or twice a day than have to take an injection. So we think that there's a significant market opportunity for that drug. Now, I just want to ask a, uh, just a general question about uh, referring to the size of the Kalins, and then I want to talk about the programs that we have in immunotherapy uh, through programs there. 
the general question being, uh, do you have any sense that the, the very small size aids in penetration when we're talking about trying to penetrate tumors or things like that? Well, in some of the formats we're using the anticalins for cancer, yes. Uh, but that's not the primary uh, uh, structural uh, approach we're taking to deploying anticalins for cancer. Okay. Because you asked a little bit earlier about why not use antibodies. I'm an immunologist. I used antibodies in my research. I made a monoclonal antibody at Alexion uh, that uh, has turned into a highly effective drug. And we do use antibodies. So. Uh, a real, a, a, one of the advantages of, or the, the versatility of the anticalins is they can be formatted in multiple structural formats. Yeah. And one of the structure, the main structural formats that we're using the anticalins for in developing multi-specific therapeutics for immuno-oncology indications is to generate anticalin antibody fusions. And let's, so we, yeah. I'm sorry, well, let's ahead. just go ahead and jump right into uh, the program. Uh, this interests me a lot. I heard some, something about it over the weekend at the meeting. Uh, we're targeting 41BB and HER2 with a biospecific. So uh, tell me about that. Okay, well, 41BB is uh, expressed on T cells that have received an initial activation signal. It's a member of the tumor necrosis factor superfamily. Uh, tumor, tumor, I should say tumor necrosis factor receptor superfamily. And it plays a, a very, very important role in T-cell activation. It plays a role in T-cell activation that really lends it to be one of the most attractive targets for activating anti-tumor T-cell responses. What do, you, what do I mean by that? Well, stimulation of T-cells through 4-MBB results in rapid proliferation, so expansion, of potential expansion of tumor-specific T-cells. Uh, resistance of T cells to activation-driven cell death, which leads to longevity of those cells. Uh, functional activation of the T cells, it enhances with, when you activate 4-MBB on cytotoxic T cells, CD8 T cells, which are considered to be probably the single most, CD4 T cells are probably important as well in anti-tumor responses, but CD8 T cells really do the business of killing the tumor mm -hmm. cells. Uh, so you activate cytolytic function, you activate the secretion of inflammatory, pro-inflammatory cytokines like interferon gamma. You drive a, a proportion of the activated T cells into what's known as the central memory phenotype. Mm -hmm. Those are the longest lived T cells uh, and uh, are considered to be the most effective set of T cells that you can activate in terms of generating durable anti-tumor immune responses. So activating 41BB clearly has a number of biologically highly beneficial effects from the standpoint of what you would want to be able to drive in terms of a tumor immune response. So, Further, so when, well, when our, all right, so the one arm of your construct is yeah. you're, you're hitting that, you're stimulating the, the T cell. Now with the other arm, we have to bring in the target, right? which is the HER2. HER2, that's our first target. We actually are using the tumor-targeted 41BB activation approach uh, for now a number of other programs, uh, but let's focus on the HER2. The HER2 is the antibody end? The HER2 the is the antibody end. Did so you we have developed the antibody? No, we took, a we took trastuzumab, oh, okay. which is on the market. Sure. We modified its constant region so that there would be no, what's known as um, activation-driven cellular cytotoxicity, ADCC, because okay. we didn't want that. That engenders a nonspecific inflammatory response, right. which is considered to have uh, some important role in the anti-tumor efficacy of, of trastuzumab in breast cancer. 
But there's also, the binding itself has an anti-tumor effect by driving inhibitory signals into, for example, breast cancer cells. Mm -hmm. But stepping back, the reason we didn't want that is because what we've done is genetically fused our anti-Kalin to form the B to the antibody and designed the bispecific protein in such a way that one, when our drug binds in significant quantities or, or amounts to the surface of HER2-expressing tumor cells, what you get is now clustering of the anti-T-cell anti-Kalins right at the surface of the tumor cell, facing out toward the T-cells surrounding the tumor. And now what you'll get is multimeric binding of the 4-1-BB receptors on the T-cells. And that multimeric binding resulting in cross-linking of the 4-1-BB receptors on the T-cells is actually required for the activation. So we've designed a bispecific such that the bispecific alone, just binding to 4-1-BB on T-cells, won't activate them. You'll only get T-cell activation when the drug is bound to the tumor cell surface. And so that, why would you want to do that? Well, one, because CD137 or 4-1-BB, uh, it's referred to by both uh, mm -hmm. designations, is considered one of the most uh, significant markers in tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in TIL or TILs. Yeah. It's one of the most significant markers on TILs that define those TILs that are tumor cells, tumor antigen specific. Right. Right. And there's studies showing that the, the uh, formerly B, CD137 positive TILs are the ones that really uh, have the tumor specificity in the tumor microenvironment. So the cells you want to stimulate the T cells you want to stimulate are right there in the tumor microenvironment. So you can get, we believe, significant clinical benefit just by activating T cells in the tumor microenvironment. Now, why wouldn't you want to just use an anti-CD137 uh, antibody? Well, if you're using an antibody that is really a potent stimulator of T cells, you're going to uh, induce what's known as cytokine storm systemically. And the most potent uh, anti-CD137 uh, antibody that's been in the clinic previously did exactly that. Caused 4-1-BB activation on white blood cells outside the tumors and actually several patients died from liver toxicity. So what we've now shown with our drug is that uh, we, we did cell-based assays to show that in this presence of T cells and tumor cells in our drug, we got very nice dose-dependent T cell activation. If we competed the drug off the tumor cell surface, the activation went away. So we demonstrated that that activation of T cells was uh, tumor cell binding dependent. So that's the way the drug was supposed to behave. Let, let me uh, return to something I believe you implied earlier. Uh, so in that in the case you just referred to, you were redosing. So. In your observations, these molecules are not immunogenic. We don't believe they'll be immunogenic. Trastuzumab is very well behaved. Sure, it's not immunogenic. Sure. And we do uh, a lot of work um, in developing anticalins. We have um, a very, very rigorous set of criteria that need to be fulfilled in order for us to take an anticalin forward. So you've not the observed the, the neutralizing antibodies at all? Well, we haven't been in patients yet. Okay, okay. But we've, we've, we have um, exposed our drugs to various kinds of tests that are done um, outside of a, of a human trial, uh, such as the, uh, uh, the EpiBase test from Lanza, which is actually a 
active cellular immunological test to look at the potential immunogenicity of drugs. And our anti-Kalin uh, antibody bispecifics, beginning with uh, the 41BB, HER2 bispecific, registers very low in terms of its immunogenic potential. Uh, obviously, I can, I can guess, given HER2, what, a tar what your indication might yeah. be. But is, is it the obvious, or are you going after breast cancer with that one? Or? We're going after multiple tumors. We think that... Um, Colon? We're going after GI cancers. Mm -hmm. We're going after uh, uh, muscle invasive and metastatic um, uh, bladder cancer. Uh, and then, yes, there's a whole host of tumors where we think there's a significant um, uh, unmet need uh, for those patients whose tumors have HER2 positivity. And what's very interesting is that uh, you know, significant numbers of patients with biliary cancer, other GI cancers, colon cancer, ovarian cancer, uh, endometrial cancer, um, in addition to bladder cancer, lung cancer, non-small cell mm -hmm. lung cancer, mm -hmm. squamous cell, non-small cell lung cancer. Even if it's 5 or 10%, there are some very effective drugs in the market um, now that treat patients with non-small cell lung cancer that represent only a few percent of the population, those that have some of the activating mutations like the ALK mutation or the EGF receptor mutation. Now we have, we have another program, uh, a, a slightly similar construct in that 41BB is, is uh, the engine, if you will, of this one. This is uh, PRS342. Uh, tell me about the, the target here, the, the G, GPC3, it sounds like a testis antigen target. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, GPC3 is, it's a proteoglycan, proteoglycan that uh, normally plays a role during embryogenesis and cellular differentiation. But like some uh, fetal antigens, it's actually re-expressed on a number of different tumors. And the tumor uh, that is most uh, well understood in terms of the association of uh, glipocan 3 expression with, uh, with the emergence of, of cancer is hepatocellular carcinoma, okay. where glipocan 3 expression is seen in anywhere from 60 to 80 percent of patients with hepatocellular carcinoma, and um, it's uh, so cleanly expressed that you can't find any of it on normal liver cells. And so uh, we have generated a bispecific uh, protein that binds to glipocan 3 and has 41BB anticalin expressed. And what we've shown so far in cell-based assays is exactly what we showed with uh, the 41BB HER2 bispecific, that we can get T-cell activation in the presence of glipocan 3 expressing hepatocellular carcinoma cells only when the drug is bound to the tumor cell surface. And so we're now taking that drug into in vivo studies. We have some very interesting preliminary observations in vivo. And we believe that the, uh, for co-stimulatory anti acti co activity, the immune system, the anti-Kalin tumor-targeted antibody uh, uh, paradigm is very, very reproducible. And so, and, and not just for 41BB, we're making anti-Kalins against a number of other co-stimulatory targets. Ah, you brought up number, you're anticipating my question. So the third one I want to talk about is 332. Now, we can't talk too much about this because there's a little mystery involved, but if you can talk about the, the rationale behind what you're trying to do with that. Yes, but before I do that, okay. as Go irrepressible ahead. as I am, yes. so we, we are making uh, anti to other co-stimulatory targets as well. 
Okay. So, and we have the potential that's been shown that certain costimulatory targets, when activated concurrently, give even a better anti-tumor effect. One example would be 4VB and OX40. There's, right. there's quite a bit of scientific support for for activating both, and and actually being able to activate more uh, immune T cell subsets as well as address T regulatory cells at the same time you're activating um, uh, effector cells. So we're very very excited about that. And the one other point I wanted to make uh, a plug for our drug since it's moving rapidly toward an IND filing very early next year is that. This whole mechanism of activating T cells in a tumor microenvironment restricted fashion, we've now shown that happens in vivo, in tumor models, in animals. In very, in, in really uh, beautiful reproducible studies, we've shown that when we give our drug to tumor bearing animals, we see a robust expansion of T cells in the tumor microenvironment, but nothing in the periphery. Okay. And that's in contrast to using an agonistic anti-4-MBB antibody as a control, where we see actually inferior T-cell expansion in the tumor microenvironment, but substantial enough T-cell activation systemically to see the kind of toxicity that we think is probably analogous to what was seen in patients that were given an agonistic anti-4-MBB antibody as a, as a uh, therapeutic, uh, uh, as a therapy. So we're very, very bullish on that program. And now finally? We're also deploying the anti-Kalins to, ge to generate multi-specific targets against uh, a, a variety of other pathways. I think everybody agrees, and it's sort of, uh, I think it's sort of given, that immunological therapy of cancer will be like uh, cytotoxic therapy of cancer was during my uh, oncology fellow days. The only way you would actually get durable responses in, in patients with cancer was cocktails of drugs. And, yeah. you know, many of the you know, the well-known acronyms were based on that whole proposal, so and CHOP we, and yeah. MOP and so forth. We're about to get checkpoint cocktails. You're going to get checkpoint cocktails. You're going to get checkpoints together with uh, other tumor targets, tar to, uh, targets that uh, mediate immune suppression in the tumor microenvironment, like some of the enzymes, the inhibitory cytokines, and co-stimulatory molecules. And so, you know, for example, we believe that Combining our, our 4MDB activator with checkpoint inhibitors is a very good chance of showing synergistic activity, and clearly that will be part of our uh, development plan. That said, I think that there's also a growing amount of, of uh, drug development in the cancer uh, immunotherapy of cancer field, which uh, efforts are being made to develop multi single drugs that have multi-specific activity. So, in addressing two tumor targets at the same time. So, for example, uh, there are drugs targeting PD-1 uh, targeted drugs are very effective, but only in a minority of patients. Much of the science suggests that one reason that may be the case is that many of the T cells in the in the tumor microenvironment uh, upregulate other checkpoints like LAG3 and TIM3. And in fact, studies have been already published showing that many T cells, in, if you look at the T cells in the tumor microenvironment, significant numbers of them are expressing uh, PD-1 and LAG3, PD-1 and TIM3, or all three, or PD-1, LAG3, and another checkpoint called BTLA4. So it stands to reason that if you're having these T cells expressing multiple checkpoints, which are all known to have inhibitory uh, 
uh, effects on their function, you'll get better T cell activation by blocking those, uh, those checkpoints concurrently. And there, there, there are trials underway in which separate antibodies are being administered to patients, hitting two different checkpoints. But clearly, even just from a, the, the expense of biologics that these new cancer drugs are, if you could make a single drug that would hit both targets simultaneously, you might not actually only be able to address both targets with a single drug and therefore reduce the cost of cancer care going forward for immunotherapy. But there's actually some evidence and some underlying science, which is fairly complex, but the data seem to suggest it may be true that hitting two targets with one drug, two targets attached to the same molecule, is more effective than addressing both targets with two separate molecules. And all this is the rationale for your bispecific? Yes, so we are developing bispecific checkpoint inhibitors as well. And we also have another program in which we're developing bispecific uh, anti-Kalin antibody fusions uh, in which two, check, two targets are being addressed in the tumor microenvironment as well. Now, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's go to the business end. Um, when's your next catalyst? When do we see the next readout for, uh, for Pyrrhus? Well, we will uh, be entering our uh, antibody, uh, anti-Kalin uh, fusion protein 343 uh, for HER2-positive cancer uh, in the first half of next year, I believe in the second quarter. So there'll be an announcement that we've initiated clinical uh, clinical development in patients with a variety of different HER2-positive tumors. Um, and we're going to be starting with a you know, phase one multiple ascending dose trial. Um, so uh, we're very excited about that. Uh, the drug is as safe as we hope it will be. Uh, we may be seeing uh, evidence of anti-tumor activity by the end of the year if we can uh, you know, d dose increase in a uh, uh, in a rapid fashion, which we're hoping to do. The drug has no toxicity. We have, uh, but we have other drugs as well. We have um, our leading, uh, we actually have a drug in, uh, uh, is an anti-Kalin um, that is pegylated uh, that's uh, specific for hepcidin, which is a master iron regulatory protein. And that drug is now in the clinic in patients with anemia, what's known as anemia of chronic disease. And that's a very uh, common, almost universal consequence of chronic renal failure in patients who are on dialysis. No. And uh, those are patients who may have adequate iron stores, but hepcidin is, over the last decade or so, has been identified as a major regula regulator of iron metabolism. And what high levels of hepcidin do is hepcidin blocks iron from being absorbed through our gastrointestinal tract and also blocks iron from being released from intracellular stores. And so by blocking hepcidin, you can make iron available for erythropoiesis. And that's in phase one? That's in phase 1B, um, and we um, are planning to uh, finish our single ascending dose trial in patients, dialysis-dependent patients with anemia and chronic renal disease by the end of this year, initiate a multi-dose study uh, in the first half of next year with uh, correction of anemia, hemoglobin, as a primary endpoint. And, and then finally, uh, as I said, this is a business after all. Uh, tell me where you are in, in financing. Uh, uh, are you good for the next quarter? Yeah, we, we just did a, uh, a pipe financing, uh, closed that several months ago, um, the $60 million range. Gives us cash reach through to develop all our programs through to the third quarter of 2018. And that should give us enough time to generate the kind of clinical inflection points that uh, would prove 
uh, we believe, the uh, potential therapeutic value of our drugs. Uh, we are, as you might imagine, focused on uh, partnerships uh, that would allow us to deploy our program more broadly against more targets and uh, in, in a greater number of indications. And so we're very active in partnering discussions at this point in time as well. Well, Lou, I look forward to speaking to you again as the story plays out. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, thanks for uh, inviting me to participate.